This is A Fresh Agenda. Conversations to connect your productivity and creativity and generate your deepest work. Here's your host, Christina Mendonza. This is A Fresh Agenda, where we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. I'm Christina Mendonza. Welcome to this tiny spot in the podcast universe. Glad to have you here for a while. This podcast is about having some deeper and more positive conversations on topics of creativity and motivation to explore how people create or build businesses or innovate in their industries. This is episode number 72, and we're going to talk money today with someone who's been studying economic cycles for a very long time. His name is Harry Dent. I first heard about him like more than 20 years ago. He's been doing this since the 70s, but I heard about him about 20 years ago when my husband and I were at our financial planner's office and he said, you gotta pay attention to what this guy's doing. Uh, So he suggested we take a look at some of the research of Harry Dent. Uh, Dent had created something special called spending wave theory, which basically follows the demographic spending of a generation as they move through early adult, midlife, and retirement years. Uh, He has since created many other uh, theories and and models and, and waves that he'll talk about, cycles as he talks about them. And you'll hear about a lot of them during this podcast. Um, But it's a fascinating look at what's been happening and what's to come. But first, I want to tell you about a book I've been reading that I'm hoping will offer me a lot of value and may offer you some too. Tribe of Mentors is by Tim Ferriss. He did the four-hour work week. Now, Ferris is a super smart guy, and talk about a brilliant way to build a book, uh, basically collecting and curating the wisdom of a lot of other people. It is a great formula, and I'm super um, glad for him. I'm enjoying his insights into all of these different people. He has a great podcast, by the way. Um, he's, you know, he certainly doesn't need my promotion. He's huge, but he's he's fantastic if you haven't checked out Tim Ferriss. Now, one tiny piece of wisdom that I've taken from the book so far is um, this quote, the only thing standing between you and what you want is a better set of questions. You really have to have good questions before you get quality answers. It's why vague goals just don't work. I realize my own goals lately have been too vague. I've realized that I need to get more specific if I'm going to figure out the questions that I need to ask of myself and uh, and others in order to take that next leap. The other thing I think all of us need to do more of is say no. And it's a little ironic that that's coming out of my mouth because last year I touted as my year of yes, where I was pretty much open to any new opportunity in this exploration of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And now I've kind of been locked into a pretty tight schedule. So I'm judging now each opportunity to see if it has that radical relevance I'm seeking this year. And I'm realizing that there are some interesting projects and things that might seem fun, but they just are not rising to the level of what I need to be doing at this point in my life with my time and creative energy. So maybe you feel the same. Are there things you're doing right now that are making you a bit resentful or feeling guilty because you can't commit your full creative self or you have to reprioritize and something that you value even more has to take a back seat? So I'm starting to call the ones that don't make sense to me, but I'm a classic people pleaser, so that's very hard. So I'm sure a lot of you are too. I feel guilty a lot when I have to say no to opportunities, Um, but I've learned and this book has kind of given me the strength to do that. So I'm hoping this book will help me pull a full few other nuggets of wisdom that I can incorporate into my own life that will A, help me understand the questions I need to be asking to get ultimate clarity on what I want, and B, 
how to say no in a way that is graceful and not disrespecting of those who want to include me in something that's important to them. So that's what I'm thinking about this week. Um, one uh, person who gi- gives none, this guy gives none, and you know what I mean by that, that's Harry Dent. <laughs> but before I unleash him on you, let me tell you about some friends and professionals that I've really enjoyed getting to know. New Age Ariel, I recently did a project with them in downtown Sacramento, and I was so impressed. I needed aerial coverage for um, a client announcement, huge news conference on a current construction project. Dave and his team showed up early. They had two amazing drones. They gave me tons of gorgeous shots of the construction, the city. They captured the big announcement perfectly. They took care of the licenses and the flight planning and the notifications and all of that stuff. I didn't have to think about anything except getting great video. And they got that video to me fast. And Dave even sent me some amazing time lapses that he's been doing lately. Just gorgeous. So if you need still pictures or video for a film project, uh, maybe some real estate, maybe an outdoor wedding, HD, 4K, time lapse, whatever you need, Dave will exceed your expectations. So give him and his team a call, or you can look them up online. That's New Age Ariel, 916-645-3474, 916-645-3474, or newageariel.com. Okay, so it's time to bounce from your investments to geopolitics, to demographic cycles, to future casting, even sky gazing, reading the stars. It is all here with Harry Dent. I was a a 25-year-old newlywed, and we were visiting our financial planner for the first time to try to set up, you know, our our whole our whole deal, our whole plan. And he handed me a copy of one of your books. I believe it was the Roaring 2000s, and said, "You got to read this guy. You got to pay attention to what he's talking about." So I've kind of followed you on and off throughout the years. Um, Tell me what's going to happen in 2020, as far as you can see. Is everything going to go to hell? Well, yeah. I mean, my, my view is the, the economy, especially in the U.S., but they pretty much globally as well, peaked in 2007. As we originally predicted, that was the peak of the baby boom spending wave. And then when things did, when we did have a, a much more serious recession, which looked more like the early 80s and, and actually started off looking like the Great Depression, then central banks just went nuts and just printed trillions and trillions of dollars. And we've been living on what I call crack ever since. We're like a patient in the emergency ward um, on life-saving medication. And, and, and no matter how much we stimulate, we always come back to 2% growth, and Japan keeps coming back to zero. So, I, you know, I feel like they've stretched this thing as far as they can. We're in the final stage of a rally. My fundamental indicators. I have four major cycles now. The demographics is is still one of the most important, but actually a a technology cycle on a 45-year clock is actually more important, especially because that's the one cycle that's still hitting now. That's the one that peaks right here in about 2019, like it did in 29 and uh, uh, 1968. And uh, so I think, you know, the the fundamentals are the worst in the next two to three years. And, and I'm just reading that no matter, you know, everybody keeps stimulating. We did tax cuts on top of quantitative easing and blah, blah, blah. And now, you know, Europe's going, getting back more aggressive again. We're going to start to get aggressive probably pretty soon. But it's just not doing much good now. I mean, we, we're already back at 2% in um, – you know, in the U.S. After, after major tax cuts and stuff. Right. And, you know, Germany's falling into a recession right now in the third quarter. Italy did in the fourth quarter last year. You know, this thing is, 
I think it's just going to blow probably by early next year. The, the, the wild card is Trump. He is going to try to do something even more stupendous, like cut payroll taxes for a couple, you know, for a year for the election for everyday people, or just send everybody five thousand bucks. I don't know. He's going to try to do something. <laughs> that. Can he get away with it? Will it happen in time? So I, I think it, it best that things peak just after the election stock market stuff, but but I think more likely early to mid next I mean early next year we're gonna see a peak, especially if it keeps going up now. If we keep breaking up, then it looks to me like the final wave and that could be over by January or so and in you know. So I yeah, I see two thousand twenty the 22 or 22, that's when the crisis hits. And it, it's kind of like the opposite of the Great Depression, the big crisis back then on very similar cycles to what I'm talking today, have the winter season. It happened at the beginning because there wasn't so much stimulus. You know, they just lowered rates. So they didn't print zillions of dollars and do all this stuff. And then they raised taxes. They didn't cut them. Uh, so we, get the, we got the worst at the beginning, and then we got an aftershock from, you know, 37 to Mm-hmm. And this is the opposite. We got our baby depression, a, big, a deep recession in, in the beginning, but they cut that short, stimulated their way out of it. So we really get the full deleveraging and impact on the back end here between 2020 and 23. So that's my forecast. And yes, I'm, I'm saying this will be the biggest crash people see. It may not be quite as bad as 29 to 32, but it may be. Hmm. But it's going to be bigger than 2008 to nine. And it's going to be the biggest thing any of us see in our lifetimes. Um, We're looking now the- at the the interest rate, a possible interest rate cut as the as the Fed tries to or and and the White House tries to use tools to to yeah. prop this up. And then, but the consumer spending is still so strong. What is keeping consumers optimistic or at least willing to spend? Well, the only thing that the consumer spending. Is is tailing off rapidly in RVs. Home construction, you know, has been down for two years. So, you know, it peaked, you know, two years ago and hasn't come back to those heights. So, and, and consumers are spending more on needs now than wants. It shows. So, so the, so I think the consumers are optimistic because they've seen this. I mean, they were skeptical. You know, when governments just print money, oh, sure, that's going to work. Well, it, it has lasted longer than even people like me have thought. You know. Um, who've been warning about this big crash, but but the consumers are more the opposite. They're more like, well, it's worked for 10 years, so do 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 so maybe everything's okay. So they're still spending, and, and their, their sentiment's up, but their spending is not growing as fast as their sentiment. So, um, and, then, and then in key durable goods sectors, especially like RVs, very discretionary things, uh, and discretionary retail is not as strong. So, I think even the consumer is going to pick up. But you really can't – I would say you can't look at the consumer. You can't look at the economy even. What did, what did our economy look like in, in 1929, just before the biggest crisis? Mm-hmm. It looked great. What did Japan look like in 1989 before a 12- to 14-year downturn? I was the only one in the world that saw that coming because I was looking under the hood at the fundamental trends and not – of course, consumer. As long as the economy's good, people say, "Well, okay, I'll buy a little bigger car. Well, I'll refinance my house, and yeah, maybe we'll go on a vacation." You know, they, they, they are kind of just doty dodo. You know, you can't look at them. They don't know shit. I mm-hmm. they, but they do do predictably what they do. But consumers have gotten a break on everything. You get more car for your money with with 
super low interest rate. You get way more house for your money with super low interest rates. Um, and all of that frees up money to spend more money on restaurants and vacation stuff. So the consumers have gotten a free ride. Businesses have gotten tax cuts, and businesses benefit from this free ride for consumers and kind of. So everybody's just kind of on crack. And then basically the question is, when when do we have a breakdown and go into detox? You know, that, that's that's the way I look at it. So for those willing to take a, a, a good hard look at it now, what do they do? Should you be saving cash so that when the market does fall, you can get back in at the low rate? Or you should you, you know, lock everything up in, in, in safe investments? I mean, what is the consumer to do? Well, you know, right now the momentum, we're, we're telling our subscribers the momentum is still up until we break some certain levels. The momentum's still up, and you might as well keep with the trend. In other words, you can you can keep in stocks. I wouldn't be getting more aggressive, but but you wait for a sign of weakness. And and to me, the sign of the first sign of weakness would be if we break below the June first lows we saw, and that's not 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 terribly far down. But so far, even here, we've been trading sideways. We're breaking up again. Well, if we can break to new highs, substantial new highs, um, in the next month or so, then then I think we, we're just in this final, what I call, blow-off phase, which, which really accelerated with Trump getting elected by surprise. That's when I got bullish again. I've been skeptical of this rally all the way. But when Trump got elected and the markets did a 2,000-point two, reversal overnight over that, I'm like, nope, stocks are going up. This is the orgasmic. This is the final blow-off phase. Mm-hmm. It's last for two or three years, and, I, and, and we still seem to be in it unless we weaken pretty soon. So I think we, we call it the dark window, the final rally before the big crash. Like in, uh, you know, we had a big correction in 98 in, in, the, in the tech bubble, and then, bam, super rally. 99, early 2000, and then the big crash in tech stocks, and, you know, similar in 29 and stuff. So we're still looking for probably more upside, but if the upside does continue, our projections say, yeah, this could be over by January. Uh, if we see some more corrections first, and then, and then we make one more new rise, it might not go quite as high, and it might extend into March or May at the latest. But I, we're saying, yes, people should be in a cautious stance, but, but, you know, why pull the plug terribly too early? But we are going to be – our targets, if we do see the NASDAQ start to approach 10,000 and the Dow start to approach, you know, 32, 33,000, that's when you say, okay, now this is really bubbly. Now's the time, even without signs of weakness, to start pulling the plug. But otherwise, you know, you, you look for a, a, a correction that breaks some – some important supports level, then you start to get more concerned. Now, where do you go? This is the hardest part because our our view with all of our cycles is, is everything builds into a uh, a four season cycle: a spring boom, uh, a, a, a summer inflationary recessionary period, like like sixty eight to eighty two. And then a fall bubble boom, which is always the bubble boom, the next boom, which is the one we're in now, which has been extended. We really went into winter in 2008. That's why the recovery has been so weak. But with so much stimulus, we still got stocks going crazy, even though the economy's really growing no faster than it did from 1929 to 40 in, the, in a similar time period. So stocks are still bubbling and into new highs. So um, 
Everything is bubbled. Real estate's bubbled. Stocks have bubbled. Commodities have now have burst most of their bubble, but they're still going to go down farther. In other words, in the winter season, after a fall bubble boom, we call it, you have to have a great reset. Everything has to be reset. I mean, debt has grown way faster than normal, and that always happens in the fall season. New technologies are stronger than normal. That happened in the roaring 20s, too. Demographics, everything. Immigration. And then the whole thing resets, and everything goes down. But, but not quite everything. What doesn't go down, what actually benefits from deflation, not just lower inflation, but deflation, is the highest quality bonds, the 10, 30-year treasuries, 20-year AAA corporates, but only the best quality. Any bonds that have default risk, even, you know, BB bonds or something, not junk, but still, you know, not top-rated, they will go down in value because the default risk goes up. And so, so you have to get the highest quality bonds in the 1930s for the whole decade when everything went down, real estate, commodity stocks, again, a big reset in all financial assets, a lot of private debt deleveraging. The, the, the Treasury bonds and the AAA corporates basically doubled in value when you count their uh, um, uh, interest paid where everything else went down. So that's one thing. Uh, rental cash flow positive, rental real estate, rentals hold up much better in a downturn. So, so those do well. And then, of course, having more money and cash and short-term cash would give you flexibility to jump on opportunity. Cash and cash flow are king. In the winter scene, every other season, even in the 70s, um, even though bonds and stocks both got hit by inflation and recession, and bonds especially by inflation, hey, um, uh, commodities, emerging countries are doing great because mm-hmm. the commodity boom was in a whole different uh, cycle demographically. So there were places you could have diversified, but there's not much place to diversify, and you have to avoid this crash because it's going to be 70 to 90 percent in stocks. And it's going to be 40% or more just in the first two to three months. That's when you know the bubble's mm. over. That, that's the time you know. You've written so many uh, books and been in this game so long. And, uh, you know, this this podcast is about um, entrepreneurs, innovators, thought leaders. So I want I to take a step back and, and talk a little bit more about your your particular background, your interest in economics. What uh, fascinated – I know your father was um, was uh, talked more about politics. What fascinated you about the economy? Yeah, my father was a political strategist. He literally single-handedly got Nixon elected, the first – Republican to win the South and, 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 and come into office, and, and except for Eisenhower, for like four decades or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so he was a big picture person. Uh, I wasn't interested in politics, so I got interested in business and economics. But, but when I took economics in college, I'm like, well, this stuff is kind of useless. Nobody can understand it. Economists disagree looking at the same numbers when scientists don't easily. I mean, I, I said, this is not my profession. So I just studied everything else in business and, and you know, started consulting to Fortune 100 companies after Harvard Business School and business strategy. But my big, my big insight, my big switch that got me into what I'm doing today was when I said, you know, I don't even want to consult to Fortune 100 companies because they're a bunch of dinosaurs. They're the past rolling forward. So I started consulting to new ventures in California. I swear, I moved from East Coast to West Coast, started working with new ventures, not, not leading at high tech. These were just basic consumer businesses 
back then playing on the young new baby boomers who were starting new trends and bringing new technologies as every young generation does. So I got to see the dimmer. I got to see, oh my God, I had to start studying the baby boomers for the <laughs> new. Holy smokes, this is the biggest generation in history. They're going to cause the greatest boom in history, and nobody sees this coming. And, oh, my God, personal computers and then the Internet and the early thing. And so that's when I got into forecasting. I basically developed my own indicators from Harvard Business School and Bain and & Company, and particularly from the demographic research I did working with, with new ventures. And I came up with whole new indicators, and I became an economist. I, I gave up on being an economist after my third course in college in 1973 when I majored, and I, I gave up. And then I always was interested in, in economics, but then when I found these indicators, I said, oh, my gosh, you can see the future. S-curve progression <laughs> technology, totally projectable. When people are going to spend money in a generation, totally projectable, on and on and on, and, you know, Commodity prices peak every 30 years. Inflation peaks every 60 years, on and on and on. So I basically, out of my research for my small business entrepreneurial clients, I developed, I, but I myself became an entrepreneur and developed a whole new approach to economics, which I'm still refining. I mean, I tell people, people get mad. I mean, there's times like this, like when this, when we get in this stimulus mode starting in 2009, we don't we no longer have the natural economy I studied for decades and centuries back. Right. You know, we artificial economy that's just basically like being on a drug and you got to decide what, when, when's the patient going to uh, overdose and, and end up in rehab. You know, that's it's a whole different thing. And so, you know, I'll have to learn some new things. And, and, and um, when... Uh, the first boom I predicted in the 90s, that's how I got famous. I'm, nobody thought the Dow could go to 10,000 by 2000, and I underestimated it, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s and stuff. So I got famous for that. But then the next boom I over-forecast because I said, no, baby booms keep spinning. We're going to go up again 2002-7. But I said, oh, this time the Dow's going to go to 35,000. Well, it didn't. Well, what changed? 9-11 geopolitics, a whole, so I discovered a whole geopolitical cycle. I dug for a couple of years and found that. And, and, and with this bubble continuing and all this stimulus, I looked back and I said, well, you know, I, I always trying to find a technology cycle. Couldn't, and, and, and my friend who co-authored Zero Hour with me, Andy Pancholi, years ago told me, yeah, but Gann had these very, yeah, he had the 30 and 60 commodity inflation cycles, but he had 45 and 90 year cycles were paramount. So I kept looking back and Damn, that is the technology clock. In every other technology cycle, you get a super bubble like this. And, and the central banks are actually, since 2009, playing into this super bubble cycle, which we only saw back in 1929 and before that, 1837. And those crashes following those were the biggest resets and the deepest depressions in, in, in Western and U.S. history. It just, seems, so, it just seems like it's moving so fast now. When you look at these, when you talk about the technology cycle, but I mean, I, I can't remember a time ever, except in the last few years, where we're seeing, you know, unicorn after unicorn after unicorn and 22-year-old CEOs all of a sudden that are multi-billionaires. It just seems to be moving so fast than any other cycle in history. Well, okay, now now that is a critical insight, and that, that one took me a while, too, because people ask me all the time, well, Harry, you're talking about 45-year cycles and 30 and 40-year generation. You know, no, no, things are speeding up. I'm like, no, that's not what history says. These cycles are concrete, but 
the opposite side of it, and that is the key to understanding technologies. Technologies are exponential, always have been. So the farther you go, the faster things happen. So in a 45-year cycle today, personal computers may go through major life cycles every three years and make jumps, whereas major appliances in the last cycle before that, electrical appliances, you know, home appliances and business would go through cycles every 10 years. And so it does, you get more cycles and more happening, but the overall 45-year cycle holds like a, I mean, unbelievable. Steamships, um, railroads, automobiles, jet engines, and then blah, blah, you know, in every other sector, it is 45-year cycle to clock. Mm. But, but think the S-curves and the progressions do move, you get more progress in each cycle, and, and I've got a special report that I particularly give to people to give to their kids, we've made more progress since 1880, the last 140 years, than all of human history combined, but with the same 500-year, 45-year, 35-geopolitical, 40-year generations, all the same cycles they have, but the progress has been massively higher. So you're, you're 120% right about that. Progress is coming faster. And, and there's, there's another thing I note, I mean, entrepreneurs have always been that 0.1%, think out of the box, 1%, the pioneers, the opinion leaders and stuff. But we're moving into an era of information technologies and access to knowledge and progress where everyday workers are going to come, at least entrepreneurs, small mm-hmm. teams, AI infused. Everybody's worried about people losing their jobs. No. Artificial intelligence is going to make everyday people smart. Small teams on the front line are going to know everything they need to know about the customer, the profitability down to the product, down to the customer, down to the day. When, 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 when's it going to be hotter or colder to sell more ice cream? Everything they need to know, bam, real time, make decisions. The software is going to be able to measure the profits they make and reward them on profits and not just give them a stupid-ass salary and gold watch. And they're not going to be competing with lower costs Vietnamese or Indian workers or something because they're not doing rote assembly line work or bureaucratic work anymore. The computer's going to take over all that. The robots are going to take over factory jobs. So, so even if, if, you know, Trump thinks, oh, okay, well, we can just, you know, bring factory jobs back here, forget that. They're all going to be gone. They're, they're already a fraction of what they were, and farm jobs are, are one and a half percent when they used to be 60 to 80 percent 100 years ago. I mean, this is this is not an understanding of the future. Technologies are our friend. Innovations are friend. Like you say, innovations is speeding up. We're, we're always going to need the radical innovators. And I hate to say, like me, I've changed economics. It's going to take a couple decades for people to figure it out. I've changed economics. And, and that's a radical innovation. But everyday people are going to have to become more entrepreneurial. And that, we're going to have a new middle class that is going to be, have higher income and more profit sharing than the old middle class. And that's how we get out of this, not putting up tariffs and trying to bring dumbass factory jobs and, and blocking innovations from taking over office jobs. Anything that's left brain, wrote, physical left brain, uh, rote, repetitive is going to be taken over by machines, computers, and software. End of story. It's the human, intuitive, creative skills, i.e., creative mm-hmm. is this on entrepreneurial people who think different, try new things, improve things, especially radically. Being think outside the box and say, "Oh, I mean, I, you know, why 
wooden corporations organize around the customer instead of around the back lines and management. Oh, well, you can do that with information technology today. That's radical. That is going to be the biggest change in the world, and that's what's going to put information in the front lines and make the front line peoples the stars and give the consumers the real customized, personalized service they want. Right now, all we're getting is more streamlined, bureaucratic. I'm being served by bureaucratic computers now. I can't get what I want from anybody. The companies that give me what I want when I want them because they put the information on the front lines and use information to push the decisions forward and reward the people in the front lines are going to kick ass. And, and, and the people who just keep streamlining the back lines are gonna, just going to fade in the sun. So you're, so you're you're seeing AI as more as augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be the computers taking over. The computers are going to make the people smarter. I already have, I mean, there's already tons of computers helping, you know, doing stuff for the inventory control and monitoring my spending. Okay, that's nice. I still can't get what I want, damn it. When I want, <laughs> oh no, oh no, we can only do this on Fridays. Oh no, no, blah, 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 blah. Why? Because bureaucrats are making decisions on the back lines when frontline people are in the action in on the front lines, know what's needed. They need to make the decisions and the changes. You need to feed them with the information to do that profitably and then reward them for it. Man, you are fired up. So I, I need to know, what are you looking at right now? What is What in your sphere is most exciting about your research right now? Well, you know, you know, to me, actually, I'm so, you know, I've been in the whole new, you know, economic research, newsletter, forecasting, books. I'm actually getting, I'm, I'm, I'm actually having a, a group come out from Australia, spend two weeks with me in Puerto Rico. And we're looking at developing an online uh, service around my economic methodology to teach people how to think differently, to teach people economics like I've learned it. I mean, I, again, I found economics to be useless, and it still is useless. And they never predict recessions, and they, they only tell you what went wrong afterwards. It's useless. My stuff, I can see so far out. I can tell you what the world's going to look like in 2150. <laughs> Asia is on the rise, and then I've got a cycle that nails that to 2150. And women are on the rise. This, this Me Too movement, women have been slowly progressing since they got the vote way after black men did. And no, this is a whole new thing. This is taking off. And that's the future. Um, the information technology does not need men's muscle. Uh, it does need their drive. They are still the best radical innovators. Men are, are better at starting that really different thing. I mean, Silicon Valley, crypto. I mean, I, I speak to these people. I've done a lot of crypto conferences. It's all men, mm -hmm. you know. Um, financial advisors is still almost all men. It shouldn't be. In a network world, who's better at networking? Women not men. Um, so in this new world, for most workers, women actually probably have an advantage, not an, uh, an advantage rather than just, oh, coming up to equal. So that's the trends. And, and I can tell you the cycle's going to come. We're going to have a next boom's going to peak around uh, 2036, 37, and then another one around 2055 to 65 in different countries. And then we're going to have another Great Depression between 2065 and 2074. I can tell young people that now. Old people don't care. A lot of young kids today are going to be alive for that next depression. Right. I can predict it today, and I'm not going to be – I may be a couple years off or magnet, but I'm not – these, these things 
I keep telling people the economy and the trend, the long-term trends are a lot more predictable than you've been led to believe. What's difficult is predicting the short term. What's difficult for me is this bubble going to burst? Is it already peaked? Is it going to peak in January or is it going to peak just after the election because Trump doesn't? Do that is really hard. I can just make good guesses of that and I can keep monitoring it. Predicting the future and which countries, I'm telling you right now, India is going to be the next China, and in the end, India is going to rule the world, not China. That I can see today crystal clear unless they just totally screw it up. So the U.S. is going to kind of, kind of move sideways and still be in the top three countries for many decades. Europe's going to fade fast. Mm. Uh, going to become number one after it takes a huge fall, a huge fall. It may take a decade for China to come back. When they do, they'll be number one for many decades, but China, uh, India will end up being the number one country in the world uh, from about maybe 2065 forward. I'll, I'll be dead by then. But I yeah. can see it today, and, and I tell people, like, right now I'm writing an article for my newsletter. What have you seen China's um, uh, uh, massive urbanization push in the early 80s before it happened, you know, when we were coming out of a long recession. Well, we're going to be coming out of a deep recession uh, two, three, four years from now. I'm predicting India is going to see not quite as aggressive because they're going to learn some lessons from China, and they're not as top down. But I, India is going to see an urbanization curve, maybe at 0.6% per year instead of 1% a year for China. But that, with India's population and their GDP per capita curve, that is going to be stellar. And, and I'm saying you can see this coming. Everybody's going to say, oh, when things go down, well, let's invest in so-and-so again or, or U.S. or China. No, India and Southeast Asia is going to be the place that's going to lead the next boom. And you can see that today. China's overdone it. Those countries have underdone it, and they've got much more urbanization potential, much more demographic potential. China's already peaked in its workforce and population growth and mm -hmm. demographic negative for as far as the eye can see. So, so China is not going to dominate the next boom like this one. India and Southeast Asia, you can see that today. That's where entrepreneurs should be turning their sites where possible. So as the Trump administration tries to kind of game the economy, keep it going until the 2020 election, and you're looking at the Democratic field ahead, who has uh, the best chance to get the attention of the American people? Is it, are they, you think they're going to follow Trump into another um, administration, or what do you see on the Democratic field? Well, again, I'm hoping the economy fails earlier than later for that reason. I don't want Trump one more time. In fact, he doesn't want one more time. If what I say happens after the election or before, but especially after, he's going to wish he hadn't got reelected. He's going to wish he got out early, blamed it on the Fed, said, oh, I lost the election because the Fed didn't stimulate enough. And then when he leaves after it falls apart, he says, see, you know, so uh, – I, I don't. Trump is not the guy. He's a disruptor, not a disruptor. Disruptors change the system. The best entrepreneurs for something better, not to regress backwards. Everything Trump doing is going back to the fifties and sixties, and then and then when he gets that far, if he gets that far, he's going to go back and, and repeal slavery. So, you know, what, what do you think is going to? Who on the Democratic side do you think is the best to try to lead the country through the next inevitable recession? I only have one, not optimal, but I only see one person that has the knowledge and the energy, and that's Elizabeth Warren, period. I, I would pick 
Warren with Buttigieg as vice president for a future, because he's very clear-headed, but he's too young. She's got plans. She knows the numbers. She knows the stuff. She's got energy. Biden is fucking dying, okay? Mm-hmm. He's um, Bernie's to Mr. Magoo, you know, great, great speaker, great energy. She's the only one. Kamala Harris has already bought it. She's the one. She's the one gaining the most momentum. But Biden still has the, well, we know the guy and he's been around. I, that's so stupid. He is not the guy. Uh, my, I've been saying for years, the best leaders emerge in a crisis like Great Depression, World War II, FDR, Winston Churchill. Margaret Thatcher was my favorite political leader in the early 80s, and Reagan. But Thatcher even more so. She really knuckled down and says, you know, the U.K. is going to muscle through. We're going to kick our way through this crisis. We're not going to take the easy way out. And guess what we're doing now? Mm-hmm. Nothing but the way out. More and more drugs, more and more tax cuts, more and more stimulus, free money. This is never, ever, ever going to work out well and never has ever in history. I keep saying, I don't see that person. Well, Elizabeth Warren is the only one I see out of the field. I still think somebody yet may emerge or Elizabeth Warren may end up getting the nomination, may end up winning if the economy collapses, which would definitely work against Trump. And then she and maybe some other people, somebody else can merge. But she's the only one I see out of the present field. There's nobody that's got the foot spot. She won. And what I like about her, most the Democrats and, and young people today, and I think it's a fault, see democracy and capitalism, especially capitalism, as a failure. No, they have been perverted. Uh, central banks have taken over free markets, and special interests have taken over democracy. This is what I see Warren as somebody who respects capitalism but wants to reform it. And, and, and it's going to take some radical stuff. So that's what we need somebody to reform capitalism and democracy in an information age, because that is what made us rich since the late 1700s, especially since the 19, early 1900s with electricity and more rapid urbanization. It's not about going to socialism and communism and top-down. And China is the worst model. And, and Christina, I've got a golden indicator that I got from Lace, Dr. Lacey Hunt, who speaks at every one of my conferences, because mm-hmm. it's the only in our life. It's called money velocity. It's a secret indicator. You can look at any country. Is it growing? And, and is it growing in what way? And it will tell you if, which countries are most productively investing their money. And guess who's the lowest in the developed world was Japan, and they're the worst. And China's the lowest in the emerging world. Uh, the U.S. is the highest in the developed world, uh, and, and Australia is strong. And India is the you know is, is one of the stronger in the emerging world. And, and that, that's what tells the secret. China is the worst model. Top-down has allowed them to grow on steroids, but steroids don't work any more than free money does. It, you're, China has overbuilt its economy more than any in history, which is why I'm saying they're going to take the biggest fall when this bubble bursts, and it's going to take them five minimum to ten years to crawl out of it, all, all the overbuilding. And by then, India will be, you know, taking the, the, right. the hay. All right, last question, and this one's going to come out of left field. I ask this to all of my guests. When you need to uh, power down, recharge, kind of uh, you know, replenish your creative energy so you can do what you do, what is your habit? What do you do? Well, you know, yeah, the best thing for me to do 
like like I think anybody going on retreat. I, I one of the reasons I moved to Puerto Rico, much lower real estate compared to moving back to South Beach from Tampa, Florida, when my wife no longer had to caretake four people. <laughs> but the other reason I've had a vacation place where I've been working on a long time, <clears throat> just a thirty minute flight from here, or forty five minute uh, boat ride after an hour car to get to the ferry. I'm on a twenty five acre lot that totally private, best view in all of Puerto Rico, totally quiet. I go there for a week, and, you know, when I don't have to get out the news, next newsletter or something, and I can just just look at long-term stuff, just to think creatively. Last time I did that, I mean, I, I just get thoughts like, wow, anybody ever noticed that, that galaxies look just like hurricanes, and at the center of a galaxy, there's a black hole, there's dark, but, but light is surrounding it. But then you look at our solar system, what's at the center of it? Light. The sun and what's around it, nothing but darkness and a few little electrons like an atom. You know, just stuff like that may not mean anything to somebody, but thinking like that allows me to see things differently. People ask, why do I study such long-term cycles? I've, I've got cycles so far when I start talking about people like tell me I need to get a girlfriend sort of stuff, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's because I can see insights from bigger cycles or different cycles that apply to shorter cycles and bigger cycles give you directions. I mean, this whole greatest bubble in history, greatest depression in the thirties, all of this is part of a, of a very aggressive 500 year cycle um, that started, you know, in 1900 when things really took off and won't peak till 2150. Right. That, that cycle. And, and so it, it, it just gives you a perspective, but, that's what I do. I just go on retreat and I just get free. And I also did that in the 80s when I started consulting to entrepreneurial companies. I only did it part time. Some companies were full time. I'd have to take them over for three to six months and turn around. But basically, I left about half my time to just creatively do research and pursue whatever. And that's where the real breakthrough insights come. It doesn't come from just trying to get a little better and keep pushing and meeting goals and stuff. That is not where radical insights come. You have to think out of the box and you have to have the space to do it. And, and you've got to just get away from it at times to do that. So a, 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 a retreat on my island, which is only 30 minute plane line away, that's the best thing for me to do. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Harry Dent. He certainly uh, does not hold back at all. Uh, you can get his latest book, The Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper During the Great Deflation of 2014 to 2019. You can order that on his website, harrydent.com. He also has a newsletter and a lot of good other information um, on his cycles and how you can start reading them as well. And don't forget to check in each morning for the KFBK Morning News on News 93.1 F. FM, Sam Shane and I are there every weekday from 5 a.m. until 9 a.m. And we're doing deeper stories, more relevance, context, lots of perspectives. You can also find the show daily on your iHeartRadio app. Just do a search for KFBK. Thanks so much to my sponsors, New Age Aerial and New Age Designs. Reach out anytime and thank you so much for listening. This has been a fresh agenda. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Christina Mendonca. Let's stay connected conversations to connect your productivity and creativity. This is A Fresh Agenda.